You know, uh, one of the things that I love about God's people singing, um, and so Mike and worship team, thank you for leading us in that, is it reminds our all too easily deceived hearts of the truths that we need to hang on to, to cling on to, to be able to endure and continue. I don't know if you noticed, but the song that we just sang is, is Trinitarian. And so there was a verse to the Son and a verse to the Spirit and a verse aimed at the Father. And each verse we meditated on a way that God meets our needs. And so in the first, we recognize that we are a bunch in need of rescue. And Jesus, our pressure redeemer, precious Redeemer and friend, is the one who rescues us. And then we declared that we are a bunch who had hopelessly lost our way, but the Spirit, our Comforter, counsels us and keeps us. And in the last verse, we were reminded that we appear before God's throne in weakness, but our God is the one who faithfully loves His own. This is some truth that uh, Malachi's bunch needed to hear. We saw this last week as Malachi declared and reminded to them that they are the ones that God has placed his love on. This is a truth that you and I need as well. And so that's what we've come here together to do, to fix our eyes on this precious Redeemer and friend. And so uh, in the spirit of that, let me continue us as we cry out and pray to our great God. So join me in prayer. Lord, you are the one who rules. You are the one who reigns. You are the one who is never caught off guard, surprised, shocked, or confused. You are a stable rock in the midst of turbulent waters. You remain constant, to the end, and you are therefore trustworthy. So we thank you that you, the trustworthy one, have sent your son to us, that you've redeemed us, that you've bought us, that you faithfully love us to the end. And so fix our eyes on that, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've not already, go ahead and in your Bible, Turn to the only Italian prophet, Malachi. What's that? Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. If you weren't here last week, you won't get that joke. Boo. Sorry, Casey. It's bad. Malachi 1. We're going to pick up in verse 6. This is the longest section in all of the book of Malachi. So it'll go run all the way from Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 through the end of chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, the plan this morning, so you can maybe kind of get your grounding and, and know where we're heading, is we're going to read through this. We're going to think about the painful critique that Malachi aims at the priests. And then we're going to spend some time reflecting and thinking on how uh, some of that critique also lands on us and how we can learn and heed Malachi's word as well. So Malachi 1, chapter 6. We read this. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? Answer, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, 
How have we polluted you? Answer, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept or show favor to you, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say... What a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces that the dung of your offerings and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I will make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. Well, I want to direct your attention to the way that Malachi bookends this. Maybe this will help us keep our bearings on where it is that Malachi is going. So notice uh, at the beginning of Malachi's rebuke in, in verse, chapter 1, uh, verse 6 and 7, 
Malachi notes that the priests have despised the Lord before the people. They've despised the Lord, they've despised his table, and they've done this in front of the people. And in response to that, that's chapter 1, verses 6 and and 7, look at the very end, chapter 2, verses 9, God says that he will then return the favor. So as the priests have despised God before the people, so Malachi says that God will despise the priests. He will make them low. He will make them shameful before the people. And so the problem the priests have, Malachi says, is they are ones who are despising the Lord, his table, his sanctuary. Now, it would be bad enough if the priests, the one who were supposed to lead the people to God, the ones who were supposed to teach the people about God, the ones who were supposed to conduct the sacrifices and preserve the honor of God's name, it's bad enough that they themselves are defiling God's name. But what makes it even worse is that Malachi says this inspires the people. We should maybe expect this, right? Because the priests are supposed to instruct the people. The people are supposed to follow the priests. The problem is now the priests are leading in a bad way. And and so you notice the priests are offering these sacrifices on the altar before God, these offerings that are polluted, that are blind, that are crippled, that are sick, that are stolen. They, They bring these offerings to God. They present them to him, and the priests declare that this work that they are doing is a wearisome task, that serving the Lord isn't a joy, it's not a privilege, it's not something good, but it's wearying to the bones. They declare that it's like a snorting, huffing, not enjoyable, not pleasant, not useful task. They provide these sacrifices that are so bad that even Malachi says the governor wouldn't accept them, and we all know how unorganized governments are. These are not good sacrifices, and the people respond, you notice, by imitating those who are leading them. And so in chapter 1, verse 14, you notice that Malachi then takes, for just a brief moment, aim at the one who has vowed a good sacrifice, and in a quick switcheroo, has taken out the good animal, has used that for himself or for some other purpose, and has brought to the Lord a shameful, bad sacrifice. This is what the priests are inspiring in the people. And, Malachi says, so the priests are despising God. The people are now despising God. And Malachi says that the priests and the people are actually being showed up in their worship of God by the Gentiles by the nations. You see that there? We're going to come back to that in a little bit. But God is so despised, Malachi says, by the priests and by the people that God cannot take this anymore. And he wishes that someone would show up and would close the doors to the temple, shut the whole thing down, and end this madness. The priests have despised God in front of the people. God says that he will return the favor, that he will despise them. And the way that God says he's going to despise the priests lead us to some of the most shocking verses in all of the Bible, at least the most shocking verses in all of Malachi. Look at the beginning of chapter 2. This is how God intends to despise the priests. Verse 3, behold, I will rebuke your offspring 
and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Now, there is very clearly the, the shameful uh, insult of what he says he's going to do, but there's another layer of shame baked into this because one of the tasks that the priests were supposed to do before they brought these sacrifices onto the altar is they were supposed to clean them up. They were supposed to take out the intestines and several other parts, cart them out of the camp, and take them away before they brought these sacrifices onto the altar. But the problem, apparently, is not only are the priests taking blind and stolen and crippled animals, they are so wearied by serving the Lord that they don't even bother to clean them up. They bring these trash sacrifices, complete with all of their intestines, they bring them onto the altar and say, surely this is good enough for our God And God says, in response to that, he is going to scatter the dung of the sacrifices on the face of the priest. The, the picture is what a, a farmer might do with his field. He'd take the grain, throw it up in the air. The wind would take away the chaff, blow it away, and the grain would come down. God says he's going to do that with their sacrifices. He'll take their sacrifices, throw it up in the air. The chaff, the dung is going to get blown away, land square on the face of these shameful priests who are avoiding their task, who are thinking that it's a wearisome task to serve the Lord, and God says he is going to land that on the face of the priests. Now, for a brief moment this week, I thought about trying to think of a modern-day analogy that might capture the grotesqueness of this for us to see, and then I quickly realized that uh, some things don't translate cultures and languages very easily, but dung slung in your face as an insult is one that I think crosses cultures and languages pretty easily. And so we've got a good idea of this. This, by the way, is not something that would, is just shocking to us, uh, but this is something that God's people have been a little uncomfortable with for a long time. And so uh, there was a translation of the Old Testament made about the time that Jesus lived. It's called the Targum, and so it translates it from Hebrew to Aramaic, because people didn't speak Hebrew anymore. Uh, and it translates chapter 2, verse 3, uh, in this way. It says, I will make visible on your faces the shame of your crimes. So same idea, but uh, a little bit more PG. Right? So this has been something that has made God's people uncomfortable for a long time. It's not something that's talked about in polite company. We tend to typically think about the Bible as polite company literature, but it's often not. And this is one of the cases where it makes us a bit uncomfortable. And so God says he's going to sling the dung from these sacrifices onto the face of the priests. At this point, the priests would be so defiled that they can't do the priestly job anymore. And so then God says he's going to do with the priests and the dung what the priests should have done with all of this from the beginning. The end of verse 3, he says he is going to take the priests away with it outside of the tabernacle, outside of the camp. They will be carted off into the rubbish heap. Now, Here's the question that I think should be burning on our minds at this point. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. God had promised Abraham that through his family, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. God's name is supposed to be prized in Israel. And so the question is, how in the world can not just Israel, but Israel's priests 
be in a condition that is this bad? Like, what has happened that has brought about this situation? If you're taking notes, there's two things that I think Malachi points us to, and this will be important as we move forward and and think about ourselves as well. The first thing that Malachi points to is the people have forgotten God, or maybe a better way. It's not that they've forgotten, but they've not been remembering who God is. Maybe you can put it this way. Disobedience comes from forgetting what God has done. Right? You've, you've been there, right? You've, you've seen this. You're not consciously remembering what God has done for you, and it becomes easier to disobey God. And we understand this. And what's more, Malachi's people would understand it even clearer than us. Remember, they'd been carted off into exile. They'd had these prophets come and tell them about all of the glorious things that were going to happen when they got brought back from exile. But you know the story. They get brought back from exile. They begin to rebuild this temple. They get the foundation laid. And the people who'd seen the first temple, when they look at the new foundation, what do they do? They weep. Why do they weep? Well, they weep because this is a sorry excuse for a temple. This is not what we had been looking forward to. Compared to the old temple, this one is nothing. So they'd had their hopes high that God was going to do something glorious. They get brought back to their land. They rebuild the temple, and it is a big letdown. And they don't remember what God has done, they begin to think if the temple's this bad, then maybe God isn't actually present with his people. Why bother serving? Over and against this forgetful attitude, the Bible repeatedly teaches the importance of remembering what God has done. And so as Israel marches from place to place, they're often told to set up a memorial that would remind them of what God has done. They celebrate festivals and feasts like Passover that remind them of the way that God delivered them from Egypt. They are supposed to be a remembering people, but they've not done that. And so Malachi tries to help them out. He reminds them of Levi. This is where all the priests came from. And he reminds them of the glorious covenant that God set up with Levi, about how God kept his covenant, about how Levi kept his covenant. And he tries to place before their eyes something worthy of remembering. And in contrast to Levi, these priests have turned aside from the way, verse 8 of chapter 2. They've caused many to stumble and they have corrupted the covenant. You priests, Malachi says, have not remembered, and so you've become discouraged, and in your discouragement, you've become rebellious. See the pattern? When we don't remember what God has done, we become discouraged about our present situation. And when we become discouraged about our present situation... In the same way that an apple tree produces apples, our discouragement produces disobedience. So we are supposed to be a remembering people. But Malachi says there's something else wrong with them as well. Not only are they a forgetting people instead of a remembering 
people, they are also a people who don't pay attention to even what is going on now, and they don't look forward to what God has said he's going to do in the future. This is maybe to borrow Jesus' language. These people don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. They are the people, as Jesus would say, who can tell what the weather is going to do by looking at the sky, but can't look around and see what God is up to by the times. Malachi points them to what the nations are doing and will do. Remember, God had promised that the glory that was present in Israel wouldn't remain in Israel, but that it would go forth and the nations would come streaming forth into the city of Jerusalem. The nations would begin to worship the God of Israel. And just a quick look around this room right now tells us that God has in fact kept that promise. We are far away from the city of Jerusalem. Few, if any of us, are ethnically Jewish, yet look who we worship. Malachi says the problem with the priests in his day is they didn't have their eyes up and looking to what God had done, was doing, and will do. Remember Ruth the Moabite. You remember uh, Daniel. And through Daniel's faithfulness to God, Darius, the Persian, begins to declare praise to God. Jonah goes to the wicked Nineveh, and they listen to Jonah. They fall down, and they repent, and they worship this God. The nations were already in Malachi's day catching glimpses of what was going to happen, of what was happening. In a few short centuries, Jesus would show up, and everything would change. We can hear Malachi saying, if you only had eyes to see and ears to hear, you would see what God is doing. And if you could see what God is doing, serving the Lord wouldn't be a wearisome task. It wouldn't be exhausting. It wouldn't feel fruitless or useless, but it would be a joyful, wonderful thing. You see the pattern. Failing to pay attention leads to discouragement. And discouragement, just as an oven produces heat, discouragement produces disobedience. So Malachi says you guys got two problems. You're not a remembering people as you're supposed to be, and you're not a paying attention people as God has called you to be. So what about us? Are there ways that you and I offer trash sacrifices to God? And if, if there are, does Malachi provide some help for us in thinking through that, in, in repenting and making adjustments? Well, I think we're clear. We are not all that different from Malachi's day. And so if, if the priests in Malachi's day were struggling with this discouragement or offering bad sacrifices, it, it is probably the case that we are as well. And so I want to give you this to think about and ponder throughout the week, but let me lead us a little bit in thinking of some places where I think we may be guilty of this. So let me ask you about this. How do you spend your time? Like, how do you organize your day? What takes priority? What takes precedence? 
Do you come to church on Sundays if you don't have anything else going on on the weekend? If something comes up Saturday and you need to stay up late, do you just sleep in on Sunday because it's something you do if it's convenient, or does it take pride of place? Or maybe during the week, you have these plans to spend time reading your Bible or praying or serving your neighbors or any of these things. Do you find yourself at the end of the day after a long, full day full of wearisome, hard tasks running out of mental space, running out of energy, running out of focus, opening up your Bible, and just not having it. It's just been a long day. And you don't have the space, you don't have the time, you don't have the energy to give to God what you know you should give to God. Has he fallen on your priority list? And you know, if you do this, when we do this, it leads to discouragement, right? We open up our Bibles and we maybe just kind of go through the motions, read a little bit, say some prayers that aren't really thought or felt. And it, serving the Lord begins to feel, like the priest said, a wearisome task. Or but what about your money? Do you find that you tend to prioritize your wants over generosity? Like, what, what takes priority? When you've, if you have some money left after your needs are met, and let's be honest, much of what we call needs aren't actually needs. They're, they're wants that we bake in so we feel better about spending money on them. But by the time our needs are met, do we then tend to think, okay, what do I want? What do I think would be nice to have, easy? Or do we prioritize, where can I give money to? How can I be generous with my money or with my time or with my energy? Are we self-centered? Or are we God-centered and looking to others? Or let me ask you one more. What about your mental space? When you think about things you want to get better at, what takes pride of place there? Do we often think about saving money, building a retirement? Do we think about wanting to get in shape? And so we form our days around that. We carve out extra time to cook better meals and exercise. Do we think about getting good grades? And so not only do we do our homework, but we spend hours and hours studying. Do we want to advance in our jobs? And so we give more hours to our work than is healthy. Do we set up these goals that our life is bent around and goals of holiness? and maturing, and faithfulness kind of get pushed to the wayside. And if we happen to have the time, and the energy, and the mental capacity, then, then we'll go after some of those things. But usually, let's be honest, our day gets long, and it's a whole lot easier to turn on the TV or to scroll through social media, to watch YouTube, than it is to do things that would actually be better for us. There's something to ponder through the week. Now, bad news, right, is we know we're not that different of a people from Malachi and his bunch. But here's some good news for you. If we're not that different than the priests in Malachi's day, then the good news is Malachi also gives us a roadmap to move forward. So what was the problem with the priests? Well, they were discouraged. The priests, it doesn't seem like we're having the idolatry problem that many of the prophets are aimed at. They're not worshiping other gods. They're just discouraged and worshiping God badly. That's a big problem. But the reason for that discouragement is they weren't remembering 
and they weren't paying attention. So uh, let me just take one of the ones that we talked about and try to help coach us through this. You could do this with any of them. So why is it that we find ourselves spending our money on our wants rather than being generous? Well, I think it stems from two problems. First, we're not remembering. We're not remembering the way that God has been generous to us. We're not remembering the way that God has showed up, seen our sin for the ugliness that it is, sent his son, paid the price for our sins, and set us free. And then on top of all of that, promised us an inheritance, gathered us together with other people to pursue and seek him. And because we're not remembering what God has done for us, we don't think about doing for others. And so one problem is is we're not remembering. But the second one is we're not paying attention. Because if we really lifted our eyes up off of ourselves and looked around to what God is in fact doing, we would see beautiful things, things that can't leave you discouraged. We would see even in repressive countries like China, the gospel spreading, churches being planted, and people believing. We would see even here in our own country, God in his sovereign way bringing the nations to us that people who don't know the gospel, that haven't heard the gospel, might hear and believe as refugees come in. We might see even in the community right around our church, God is bringing growth and new people are moving in and people can hear the gospel. We might even look up and look around this room and see the ways that God is knitting us together in unity and love. See the ways that God is causing growth to happen in this very body as we pursue holiness and grow and learn about God and seek to love others. And if we caught a glimpse for what God is doing now, much less what God has promised to do in the future, it begins to get really difficult to imagine how we might prioritize our wants over being generous to others. Right? We, like the priests in Malachi's day, tend to be a forgetting people and a not paying attention people. Remember, forgetting and putting your head down, not paying attention to what God is doing, inevitably leads to discouragement. And discouragement leads to disobedience. So question for us. This is kind of the the last turn we'll make this morning. How do we remember? How do we pay attention? How do we anticipate? This is a a question that might at first sound complex and, and difficult and intimidating, but it's a question you actually already know the answer to. It's the things that we know we should be doing, because what happens as you read your Bible? Well, you remember what God has done. You're taught to pay attention, and to look around to what God is doing. What happens is you pray. You remember what God has done in your life. You're paying attention to what God is doing in your life, and you're looking forward to what God will do in your life. What happens when you gather together with others? The same thing. We're remembering. We're paying attention. We're anticipating. What what happens when you celebrate Christmas and Easter? These events anchor us, they root us, they remind us of things, and they point us forward. What happens when we do baptism? We're remembering. We're paying attention. What happens when we partake of communion? We remember and we pay attention. And these all transform us. They teach us 
They remind us what God has done. They give us eyes to see what God is doing. And they fix our eyes on what God is going to and will continue to do. And so this is, uh, as maybe you already know if you've been around for a while, this is the first Sunday of the month. And the rhythm here is the first Sunday we set aside as a time to partake in the Lord's Supper together. And this communion time is two things. It's more than this, but for this morning's purpose, it's two things. It is an act of remembrance, because as we take part in this meal, we remember the first time this meal was had with Jesus and his disciples, which, by the way, was actually a remembering of a long-before meal of Passover and God delivering his people, but you get the idea. And what does Jesus say? He says, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And so when we take part in communion, we are remembering what God has done. We remember that Jesus died, that his body was broken, and that his blood was spilt for our sins. But it's also a paying attention act. Right? Because when we take part, we're also paying attention to what God is doing right now, and we're looking forward to what God has promised he will do. Jesus says it this way. He says, I will not eat again of the fruit of the vine until what? Until I drink it new in the kingdom of, of God. Jesus is looking forward to a day when he will again. Or, or Paul says it this way. When we take part in the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death until when? Until he, he comes. We're looking ahead. We're remembering and we're paying attention. And so for those reasons... The Lord's Supper is something that is only for Christians, right? So uh, Lord's Supper, Christians aren't, aren't being mean or overly exclusive when we say if you're not following Jesus, you shouldn't take part in this really tasty cracker and warm juice, as, as if that was an insult. Um, Christians are saying this is something where we remember what God has done, we're paying attention to what God is doing, and we're looking forward to what God will do. And if you don't believe those things, it doesn't make sense to partake in that. And so we would ask you, if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, uh, please not to participate. If you were glad that you're here, we're glad that you're able to see this. Um, if you would like to talk about who Jesus is or what it means to follow him or what that looks like, then any host of people in this room or myself would love to talk with you. But if you're not a Christian, we ask that you don't participate. If you are, though, a Christian, take joy, take heart. This is a meal that God has given his people to sustain them. And how does it sustain us? Well, it reminds us and it points us forward. So uh, you should, at this point, be able to find in the pew rack in front of you a little communion cup and a wafer. As we always do, we will take the bread first. And we will remember. We will remember the first time Jesus shared this meal with his disciples. And we'll remember what Jesus was moving forward to after this meal. Luke twenty-two, nineteen. Luke tells us this. And he, Jesus, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it 
and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, as we remember your body broken, as we remember your sacrifice given for us, we're moved to thankfulness for the ways that you have loved your very own even to the end. And so Jesus, may this thankfulness, may this remembrance lead us far away from discouragement May this lead us to joy and hope and a flurry of activity that flows forth from remembering what it is that you have done for your people. So thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Have your way with us, we pray. Amen. Well, in the same way, after the supper was over, Jesus took the cup. I'm going to read out of Matthew here. We're going to shift Gospels on you. Matthew 26, verse 26, says this. Now, as they were eating, uh, sorry, verse 27, and he, Jesus, took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus, we thank you for pouring out your blood. We thank you for not only reminding us of who you are, of what you've done, but we thank you for giving us a hope and a future. We thank you for directing our eyes forward to the day when you will, in fact, drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so may we be found faithful until that day. By your Spirit, lead us into faithfulness. Lead us into obedience, that we might be a people who remember your sacrifice, who pay attention to what you are already even now doing in the world around us and who eagerly look forward to the day when you will make all things new. May your name be praised. Amen.